You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. This to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au across the known world. That's right, and the unknown world. My name is Joseph Toscan. I'm hosting today's program. If you wonder what anarchism is all about... It's an exceptionally simple concept. You don't need a PhD in politics. You don't even have needed to go to school. And many of the anarchists in the 20s and 30s had never seen the inside of a classroom. It's a very simple concept. It means anarchos without rulers. The anarchist mission is to create a society without rulers. How do you do that? What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people, as we're seeing around the world, especially in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict? It's very simple. It's inequalities in power and wealth. It's the centralisation of power and the centralisation of wealth. So the anarchist struggle is to break down hierarchy, break down the centralisation of power. It's about devolving power. It's about being involved in movements, uh, both social, cultural, political, that are about creating a non-hierarchical type of structure. It's also about keeping the Commonwealth and using it for the common good. Very simple concepts, whether you call yourself an anarchist or not. If that's what you've been struggling for, that's what you're interested in getting involved in, that's what anarchism is all about. Forget about the academics who tell you it's this and tell you this is the particular strategy which was followed on the 1st of January 2019-27 and we've got to do this over and over and over again. Forget about all that crap. Anarchism is a dynamic force. It's a dynamic ideology. It's about breaking down hierarchy. It's about devolving power. It's about holding wealth in common. That's what it's all about. And if you're involved in those struggles, you're an anarchist, whether you like it or not. All right, look, I did warn you last week that we would see some grubby, grubby, stupid, ignorant little person Soil Anzac Day, and it wasn't me. The Defence Minister couldn't help himself. Mr Dutton, the Australian Defence Minister, couldn't help himself on what is theoretically the most sacred day on the Australian calendar. Well, that's what people say. Okay? Anzac Day. And here he is. He gets up. No respect for the dead. No respect for the sacrifices that have been made. In vain in many situations, but real sacrifices. We've had real effects on real families and real people in, in the Australian community for decades. And he gets up and he thinks this is some type of forum for him 
to wave his jingoism at us, to talk about war, to talk about being prepared for war, to talk about not curling up in a ball. What a stupid, ignorant little man. And if he is re-elected by his electorate in Queensland, I think it highlights the situation we find ourselves in. Now, Anzac Day, as I said last week, is a day of remembrance. I mean, many people who died in many of the wars that Australia has been involved in in the past 120 years died for nothing. Died for nothing. Died on the altar of Mammon. But irrespective of what they died for, the decisions that were made to send them to war were political decisions which were made by people like Dutton. Now, the current federal government is paving the way for some type of existential conflict with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. That is what they are doing. And for Dutton, the Defence Minister, to trample on Anzac Day with his crappy opinions, his pro-war, warmongering rhetoric highlights the moral bankruptcy, not only of Mr Dutton, but of the government he represents as Defence Minister. Extraordinary. And what's even more extraordinary is the lack of response from the legacy media and to a significant degree from social media. The fact that this man gets up on the holiest day, a day of remembrance, and promotes war, promotes division, as if Anzac Day is his forum. It's not, and it never will be. And the sooner the sooner he is removed from Parliament by his electorate, the sooner we'll have some sense. You listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Oscar. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Sunday is the 1st of May. Now, the 1st of May is a day that is basically being forgotten in Australia. And uh, although there'll be May Day ceremonies and marches across the country, there'll be relatively small affairs, relatively small affairs. And to a significant degree, May Day has been forgotten because people have forgotten the facts. Now, May Day in Australia, to a significant degree, is an anarchist initiative. We had a very strong anarchist presence in Australia in the 1880s, an exceptionally strong presence. And I'm going to go through the facts regarding May Day because you won't hear these facts in most other uh, broadcasts and analysis and written history. It's as if there are convenient facts and inconvenient facts. As you know, convenient truths and inconvenient truths. So I'm going to go through the history, so bear with me. The history of May Day, both internationally and in Australia, is interlinked with the history of the Australian anarchist movement and with the international anarchist movement. 
1884 at a conference of the Federation Federated Trades and Labor Unions of the United States and Canada, the delegates at the conference decided to launch an intensive campaign for an eight-hour working day that would culminate in widespread, widespread struggles on the 1st of May, 1886. That's right. It was an initiative of the Federated Trades and Labor Unions to, you know, set a day. Demonstrations were held across Canada and the United States on the 1st of May, 1886, for the eight-hour day. Now, a lot of people think that Australia had the eight-hour day. Only certain tradesmen and tradespeople had the eight-hour day after the struggles in 1855 and 1856, post the Eureka Rebellion, which laid the groundwork for people with skills to claim an eight-hour day. But the majority of workers during that particular period did not work an eight-hour day. Now, in Chicago, in the US, over 30,000 workers went on strike and over 80,000 took part in demonstrations to mark the struggle for the eight-hour day. Two days later, on the 3rd of May, 1886... Striking workers met outside the McCormack Harvesting Machine Company. Chicago police and private security Pinkerton guards fired on the assembled workers. That's right, peaceful demonstration outside the Harvesting Company, the McCormack Harvesting Company. Police and uh, private agencies fire on the workers, killing four and wounding many others. Chicago anarchists organised a protest meeting in Haymarket Square for the next evening. The rally was non-violent. As the rally was breaking up, police charged the demonstrations, as they normally do when, you know, when you're a weak, as few of you. Someone threw a bomb at the police lines, killing one police officer. The police panicked, firing indiscriminately into the crowd and each other. Seven police and four demonstrators were killed and over 100 police and demonstrators were wounded. Eight prominent anarchists, Chicago anarchists, were rounded up and charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Although only three, Albert Parsons, August Spies, Spears, and Samuel Fielden had spoken at the rally. All eight, Albert Parson, August Spiels, Samuel Fielden, Michael Schwab, Oscar Neeb, George Engel, Adolf Fischer and Lewis Ling were found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and, were, and seven was, were found guilty, seven were sentenced to death and one Oscar Niebel to 15 years imprisonment. August Spies, Spears, George Engel, Adolf Fischer and Albert Parsons were hanged, that's right, hanged on the 11th of November 1887. Lewis Ling committed suicide the night before and Fielden's and Schwab's sentences were commuted to life imprisonment. All eight men were victims of the widespread hysteria whipped up by the Chicago media. Nothing new, is there? It was later proven all eight men 
had nothing to do with the bombing. And those executed and those imprisoned received a full pardon. I'll say it again. It was later revealed they had nothing to do with the bombing and all eight men received a full pardon. In Australia, on the 1st of May, 1886, brothers David and William Andrade, heeding the call of the Federated Trades and Labor Unions of the United States and Canada, launched the Melbourne Anarchist Club, Australia's first anarchist organisation. Three years later, on the 14th of July, 1889, the International Labour Conference, the Second International, decided to make the 1st of day a great day of international demonstration. An Australian delegate, John Norton, from the trade unions in Sydney, attended the conference on behalf of the Australian movement. The members of the Melbourne Anarchist Club celebrated the 1st of May 1887 and 1888 with a number of public meetings and lectures. May Day was celebrated in Victoria in the offices of Dr William Maloney, who later became the Radical Member for the Federal Seat of Melbourne, in 1890 and 1891. The first May Day celebration and demonstration were held in Barcaldon, Queensland, and Ipswich, Queensland, at the height of the Shearer's Strike in 1891, a strike which paralysed the east coast of Australia. Over a thousand people took part in the march in Barcaldon. 600 Shearer's were mounted on horseback. The procession was led by four strike leaders wearing blue sashes. The Odd Fellows Band was followed by the banner of the Australian Labor Federation. The Eureka flag, and this is very important, the Eureka flag was carried by some participants during the first May Day march in Buck Golden. In 1893, moves were made in Queensland to have the eight-hour day celebrated on the 1st of May instead of March. In Melbourne, in 1892, a public celebration was held at the Arab Bank in Melbourne to mark May Day. The meeting was chaired by well-known Melbourne anarchist Chummy Fleming. The meeting was preceded by a march which began at the Wolves Monument, which was led by men carrying two huge red flags. In 1893, Chummy Fleming called a meeting of radical delegates from across Melbourne to organise future May Day celebrations in Melbourne. Chummy Fleming was involved in every May Day celebration in Melbourne until his death in 1950. His ashes were scattered on the Yarra Bank on May Day in 1951. Chummy Place in Carlton bears his name. On Sunday, the 1st of May, we encourage anarchists, radicals, workers, activists, to assemble at 1.30pm at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, to join the official May Day March and mark the 136th anniversary of the Melbourne Anarchist Club's beginning, Australia's first anarchist organisation. The Melbourne Anarchist Club hired a second-storey room in a theatre that stood on on the site Her Majesty's Theatre currently stands as their headquarters in 1886 and 1887. The history of May Day in Melbourne 
in Australia and around the world is intrinsically interlinked with the history of the anarchist movement. Now, this May Day, that's this Sunday, the 1st of May, in Melbourne, if you're listening to this program, in Melbourne or Victoria, I'm holding a little walk, a historical walk, which I did last year. And it's a walk which will begin at 10am sharp, and that's the key word, sharp. It'll begin at 10am sharp at Chummy Place, which is near Argyle Street in Carlton. Look it up on your search engine or you still use a uh, street directory, a street directory. 10am. Bring flags. Bring banners. From there, we'll do a two-hour walk around the Melbourne CBD, looking at historical and recent important anarchist sites. We'll walk from Chummy Place to Trades Hall to look at the only monument I know that has been erected to all those Australians who voted no to conscription in the plebiscites which were held in this country in 1916 and 1917. And it's no exaggeration to say if those plebiscites had failed, another 60,000 young Australian men would have been sacrificed on the European killing fields for the glory of God, King and country on the altar of Mammon. This is one monument which we'll possibly be able to look at depending on whether that section is opened or not because it's been under renovations. Then we'll move across to the Agricultural Hall which is across the road, the older Agricultural Hall which is across the road from uh, the Trades Hall. This was the site of the Matteotti Club, a social centre which was set up by Italian anarchists in exile in Australia who had escaped the Mussolini government who were disgusted with the lack of response of Australian workers to the impending fascist onslaught. Let's not forget in the 1930s Australia was a very divided nation and using race as their calling card. The Australian fascist movement was exceptionally strong. And the Italian anarchists set up this social hall across the road from Trades Hall to point out to trade unionists the risks they faced in the very near future. From there, we will move across to the eight-hour monument and then to the Tanaminawe Moor Bohema uh, monument. And you say, why the Tanaminawe Moor Bohema monument? Very simple. This is an anarchist, a modern anarchist initiative. From there to the State Library, one very good reason. Uh, Chummy Fleming was, uh, with other radicals were involved in a huge protest in the 1890s to open the library on Sunday, because remember, although the people had an eight-hour day, they worked Monday to Saturday, and he went to jail for refusing to pay fines in, uh, in those uh, to have the library open. So it's a bit of a bit of a bit of a fun. Then down the road, I think it's two one three or two one five uh, Russell Street, 
is the famous three-storey Melbourne Anarchist Centre Vegetarian Restaurant and Meeting Rooms, which were set up in the 1890s. From there, we'll go to Her Majesty's Theatre to see the uh, area where the Melbourne Anarchist Club had its uh, headquarters. And obviously from there, we will move on for lunch at 12 at the Paramount Food Court. And from there, we'll walk back uh, to the official May Day March, which begins at 2pm, although people have been asked to assemble from 1pm. So it should be an interesting day. Obviously, there'll be a few other sites as we go around, but uh, the important thing is Melbourne has an anarchist history. It's, a, it's important we remember that history, and it's important that the Melbourne Anarchist Club, which was formed on the 1st of May 1886, many, many of the ideas which we talk about today, 100 and, what is it, 100 and, oh, almost 136 years later, are directly related to ideas which were put across by these people at that particular point in time. We have a history, we have a proud history, we have an important history, we continue to be part of uh, this country's social, cultural, political, ideological framework and we encourage people to come on the day and join us on the 1st of May. Okay, let's move on. Now, I can see you shaking your head. Joe, why did you do it? Why did you do it? Why have you wasted $2,000 of your hard-earned money and gone through the ringer, jumped through the hoops to become an independent, ungrouped Senate candidate in Victoria? Why? Well, maybe I need my head read. I'll tell you why. It's very simple. It's very simple. Elections are a time where theoretically it's a contest of ideas. And I think to turn your back on the electoral process, whether you vote or don't vote, is irrelevant. What's relevant is turn your back on the electoral process and not utilising this small window in time when people actually think, a proportion of the population thinks about policies, not to put your oar in the water. Now, I have a snowflake's chance of getting my deposit back. So I've just lost $2,000. I would need to get one, I need to get 40,000 primary votes. That's 4% of the primary votes. Uh, that's, you know, number one votes in, my, in the box in order to be elected, uh, in order to get my deposit back. And about, oh, maybe about 450,000 votes to become an independent senator. Now, this is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Anybody who thinks it's going to happen, well, I thank you for your support, but it's not going to happen. But this is a platform that we can use to promote policies that are important to people as a whole and that are important to us. And that's what this campaign is about. It's about putting policies on the public agenda which are not there. Because if you've seen 
and heard and watched the so-called public debate, which is massaged by the legacy media in this country, up till now, you will realise the poverty of the debate and the poverty of the ideas that are put forward. And that's because the major political parties understand that if they put forward ideas which seem to be a little bit reformist or radical, they will be gutted by a legacy media which is basically an apologist for the corporate sector in this country, that 1% that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. They will be gutted. And we see it day after day after day after day. So it's up to people like us to be realistic and demand the impossible. And that's the key. Be realistic, demand the impossible. Because you see, the problem in Australia... Look, I'm going to do a little bit of a comparison. I did a little bit of research, which is unusual, but a little bit of comparison. I always like to compare Australia to Bangladesh. Now, in Bangladesh, we have 170 million people living on a floodplain, on a delta, which is about two-thirds the size of Victoria, okay? So it's 170 million people on a floodplain, about two-thirds the size of Victoria. Now, in Victoria, we have about 6 million people currently, or maybe 6.2, all right? In the whole of the country, we have about 25 million, plus or minus a few more, all right? Now, we saw about, I think it was about 18 months ago, we saw one of the poorest countries on the planet, uh, average wage about $350 a year, not a week, a year, taking almost 1 million refugees from Myanmar. That's a country of 170 million people living on a floodplain, two-thirds of the size of Victoria, taking in almost a million refugees within a six-month period. They didn't turn them back at the border. They didn't jail them. They didn't refuse to resettle them. They didn't hold them in prison for nine years, like we are doing currently. They took them in. They took them in. Now, occasionally I switch on the television set to watch a bit of news. And I don't always watch the Government Guild at ABC. Sometimes I watch the Government Guild at SBS for a bit of world news, for a bit of news. And every time I see a Smith family ad for Australians to give money to look after Australian children who haven't got enough money to access public education, not private education, I feel sick. Look, I congratulate the Smith family on their initiative. I don't feel sick because of what they're doing. I feel sick. When I think of the situation in Bangladesh in comparison to Australia where we have 25 million people living on a resource-rich continent compared to 170 million people living on a floodplain who've just taken in, 100, have taken in just a million refugees 
and I look at our situation, that we have a private organisation, a private charity, raising money, raising sponsorship so the Australian public can actually support Australian children to access public education, which theoretically is free for all. I mean, no one, no one in this resource-rich country should be living in poverty. The problem isn't the size of the cake. Obviously, in Bangladesh, there is a problem with the size of the cake. A lot of people, minimal resources, it's difficult. But we're not Bangladesh, this is Australia. No one in this resource-rich country should be living in poverty. The problem in this country isn't the size of a cake. It's a giant cake. It's a wonderful cake. The problem is how the cake is divided. I mean, it's unacceptable, totally unacceptable to have 1.2 million Australian children living in poverty and one-third of Australians who rely on disability support pensions, unemployment benefits, student allowances, old-age pensions, to be, living, to be living on less than $500 a week in this resource-rich country. Now, if a week or so ago... Mr Fox donated $100 million to build a building with their name on it, obviously, you know, naming rights, for the National Gallery of Victoria. And people said, wow, isn't that wonderful? Now, I think, no, this is not wonderful. Why should a private individual have naming rights on a public institution? And is that $100 million tax deductible? Is it tax deductible? And I assume it will be tax deductible. Think about it. We have philanthropy from the rich and powerful because they don't have to pay tax. It's a voluntary act as far as they're concerned. If you don't pay your tax, you're in trouble very quickly. So the problem isn't the size of the cake. The problem is how the cake is divided. It's very simple. How the cake is divided. Now, I don't know if most people know much about the Victorian Mount Nash. It's the second tallest um, tree in the world. It's the tallest flowering plant in the world. It can grow up to 100 metres tall. Many specimens were destroyed, cut down decades ago and continue to be cut down in order to provide timber. But you know how, you know how the Victorian Mount Nash, a tree that grows to 100 metres, lives for around 300 years, how it begins its life? The little kernels which fall off the flowers onto the ground keep a two millimetre seed protected. When fire ravages the area, 
these seeds pop out and start growing rapidly. Now we find ourselves in the same situation and the policies which I'm going to outline are like these two millimetre seeds which are encased in this protective layer. And this protective layer, you call it culture, call it civilization, call it whatever you like, is under threat. And in this country it's under threat from two major issues. One, the climate emergency. Two, growing inequality in this country, which continues to grow year after year after year after year. We've become a billionaire factory. Growing inequality, climate emergency, that's our fire. That is the fire that will release these ideas. And these ideas may look two millimetres tall today, but if there aren't people like us who are willing to put these ideas into the public forum, who are, not, who are willing, whether they will ever be part and parcel of human existence or not is irrelevant. What is relevant is that they become part and parcel of everyday conversation. And that's why we say, be realistic, demand the impossible. It's not the size of the cake, it's how the cake is divided in this country. So what are these policies? Now, this is not a comprehensive list. At the end of this, I'm going to ask you to help. That's right. Not necessarily by voting for me, but necessarily by getting these ideas out there. The first one is a universal basic income. What does a universal basic income do? It gives every Australian who does not want to be part of the wage slavery or who is not able to work the ability to lead a comfortable life. Not a rich life, but a comfortable life. Not a life which is limited to $500 a week, but a comfortable life. This means in an era of increasing mechanisation during the digital revolution, we don't need everybody to work. During Roman times, you had the problem between the patricians and the plebeians. As the patricians extended their European and Asian and Asia Minor empire, they used slaves. That's right, they used slaves to make the plebeians almost irrelevant. They didn't need them to work. So they had bread and circuses. At one stage, it was over 200 public holidays and subsidised food and housing for the plebeians so they wouldn't revolt. Today, our slavery, a mechanical slavery, it's about mechanisation, it's about the digital age. It's not about human slavery. We have now reached a stage in human development, especially in this resource-rich country, where not everybody needs to be part of the wage system to survive. And unfortunately, in 2022, if you're not part of the wage system, you live a hand-to-mouth existence in Australia. So a universal basic income gets rid of Centrelink. You don't need to go through all this garbage to prove. It also allows people to leave unsuitable or difficult or violent domestic situations. 
because the income comes to the individual, not the family unit. So it has a lot of advantages for society as a whole, advantages for the individual, advantages for society. Now, when we talk about the the climate emergency, it's all about green capitalism. It's all about centralisation, huge solar farms, huge wind farms. It's about changing the names on this centralised energy system. Well, we're about cooperative green energy, decentralised energy systems. We have the technological know-how to have decentralised, community-owned, cooperatively-owned energy system. What is required is seeding funding to get these energy systems off the ground to provide energy to communities, regional, rural, urban, and the list goes on and on. And seeding funding should be provided by the government of the day. We need to establish an Australian uh, Australian publicly owned electric car industry. And if electric cars is the way of the future, why not have an Australian publicly owned electric car industry? We have the resources, the knowledge, the expertise to do it, to provide electric vehicles at reasonable cost for the population. When we talk about the climate emergency, the climate emergency to a significant degree has, inc- has, has been created by a manufactured economy, manufactured needs. We need to look at how we live as a people. If you want to have a, you want to dent CO2 emissions, we have to look at having an economy based on the satisfaction of real, not manufactured human needs. And most of the Australian economy today is based on manufactured human needs. And if people say, well, look at all the people going to be unemployed, that's why you have a universal basic income. And then you say, oh, look at all those rich people who got a universal basic income. Well, they pay it back through the taxation system. Now, in the Australian economy, we basically have a private-dominated economy. The privatisation of public assets over the last 40 years has meant there is no real competition in the Australian economy. None. So we need to build up the public sector and, more importantly build a cooperative collective centre, sector of the economy. So you've got a three-way competition between the private sector, the public sector and the cooperative and collective sector. Three-way competition, real competition, based on an economy that satisfies real, not manufactured human needs. Now, a lot of people talk about small business, and you'll hear the Liberal National Party especially tell us they're the champions of small business. And you'll see the five million people that are involved in small business. You'll see significant sections of that group thinking that the Liberal National Party is their people and they will vote for them ad nauseum. Well, small business, 90% of small businesses in this country fail within five years. And why do they fail? 
because they can't compete with a corporate sector which holds a virtual monopoly on every section of society. Look at look at retail. Look at the names that pop up over and over again. Look at hardware. Look at the name that pops up over and over again. Look at health, private health care. Look at the name that pops up over and over again. Look at private education. Look at the names that pop up over and over again. Look at aged care. Look at the names that pop up over and over again. So we need to do something to encourage and protect and ensure that small businesses don't fail. And I'm suggesting a very simple policy, a very simple policy. You increase the threshold of businesses that employ 10 or fewer employees by $25,000 for every full-time employee who is paid award wages or above award wages. The current system means that businesses will fail. It means they will underpay their people, they will pay them under the counter, they will exploit them in order to survive. So if we increase the taxation threshold of every by $25,000 for every full-time employee who's paid award wages or above award wages, small business would be in a position to actually compete with the corporate sector. At the same time, there are many micro-businesses. That means there are, you know, there are, there's only one employee. That's the person who does, uh, does the job. So let's increase the taxation threshold of micro-businesses to $70,000. That would ensure that anybody involved in a micro-business would be able to survive. Let's move on. Now, I know this sounds a little bit old-fashioned, but the establishment of publicly-owned bank. Since the Commonwealth Bank was privatised in the 1980s, we've seen the private banks rake in the profits. There is no competition between the big four and the little fifth one. Publicly-owned essential services. Why should water be privately-owned? Why should electricity, gas, the list goes on and on. Publicly-owned serum laboratory. Remember, we privatised the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory in, in the 1990s. Publicly-owned pharmaceutical industry. And the list can go on and on. Publicly-owned airports, essential war, ports. And the list goes on and on. So it's about time we went back and looked at the idea of having publicly-owned resources, not just to provide services, but to make a profit which goes back to the Treasury. And that is the tragedy of the last 40 years of privatisation. Many government-owned businesses which were profitable have now been sold off at peppercorn rates, which means that money does not go back into Treasury. And so we have to rely on taxation, and most taxation, two-thirds of taxation, comes from pay-as-you-earn taxpayers in this country. Now... The climate emergency has created disasters and it will continue to create disasters irrespective of what we do. So I'm suggesting we establish 50 regional, rural and urban disaster centres that are fully staffed and equipped to manage the increasing number of disasters caused by the climate emergency. Coordination in Canberra, but 50 
maybe for 500,000 people in large urban centres, 250,000 in regional centres, 100,000 in rural settings. They are there. They can provide urgent accommodation. They can provide support during a pandemic. They can provide support during a flood, during a fire, during a cyclone, and the list goes on and on. Not the piecemeal, pathetic response we have today. Housing prices. They all talk about first home buyers. Let's forget about all this crap. Let's forget about this crap about social housing. You know, social housing, affordable housing, community housing. It's all publicly owned. It's all privately owned. Privately owned. We should have a public housing system that should house every Australian who cannot afford to buy a home a public house. And we could do that through a spot purchasing program. does not even have to be a huge building program, but a spot purchasing program. Think about it. You want your children and grandchildren to have a roof over, permanent roof over their heads? Many European countries, 50% of people live in public housing. In this country, it's less than 3%. And most of that's been privatised, especially in the state of Victoria. A migration policy based on a 50% quota for refugees and asylum seekers who make the best citizens. Refugees and asylum seekers, they've got nowhere to go back to. It's not about stripping developing nations of their most, the brightest people and bringing them to this country to work here because we can't be bothered putting out the money to train our, our own citizens and permanent residents to provide these specialised services that we've got to rely on stripping developing nations of their intelligentsia, of their skilled people. Let's have a migration policy based on a 50% quota for refugees and asylum seekers with the climate emergency of the increasing threat of war and inequality. I can assure you there'll be more than enough refugees and asylum seekers floating around the world to fill that quota in the first month. Let's free all those asylum seekers and refugees that are still currently held in prison for over nine years, for having the audacity to come to this country by boat and seeking asylum. What a pathetic situation when the major political parties can't even say enough is enough. I mean, this country shouldn't be based on the concept of collective punishment. We keep them in prison to ensure that other people don't make the journey. Come on. We're better than that. Increase funding for the health and education sector by at least 20% over a three-year period. Just increase that funding. We saw the public health sector buckle under the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen what's happening to public education where more and more money is being given, given away to the private sector. We need to stop the privatisation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme. What a scam. What a scam. We've got a situation where 40 cents in every dollar goes to private organisations as far as profit is concerned or uh, running costs. What, what a scam. No wonder people are having difficulty accessing the National Insurance Disability Insurance Scheme. I'd like to see the implementation of all the recommendations of the 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart. These were very simple, basic 
basic, you know, things. One, a voice to parliament. Two, truth-telling. Voice to parliament. Truth-telling. Begin negotiations for a treaty or treaties. What's so hard about that? Well, when you think it took till 1992 for the Mabo, for the High Court of Australia in the Mabo decision to acknowledge that this country was not inhabited by no one, terra nullius, well, then you understand what's going on. Roll back legislation that criminalises trade unions. All future resource development to be publicly owned. Why give it to billionaires? It's our resources belong to this country's First Nations people and us. We should be able to develop it. Break the monopoly, the legacy media has on Parliament, Parliament's legislative agenda by breaking down the legacy media, by introducing laws which break down the monopoly and a few individuals hold in this country as far as the legacy media is concerned. An independent foreign policy based on our region with a focus, with support for an independent West Papua. Let's break the monopoly Let's break the monopoly that the Parliament holds in legislation. Let's have a, a referendum on citizens-initiated referendums. Hmm? That would give them a bit of indigestion. And let's, why not decriminalise drug use? The war on drugs is a total failure. Let's use the Portuguese model as a template to begin with. They've been going for over 10 years with extraordinary success. Well, Joe... You're dreaming, all right? You're dreaming. How are you going to get this? How are you going to finance this? Well, I'm not talking about revolution. I'm not talking about blood in the streets. I'm talking about parliamentary legislation. One, a 1% financial transaction tax on all financial transactions over $1,000. Two, a 1% stock market transaction tax on every stock or share bought or sold on the Australian stock market. Three, 70% tax on individuals and corporations exploiting Australia's rich mineral resources if the value of their investment is over $50 million. Four, 1% of superannuation funds to be used as seeding funding for green energy cooperatives and collectives, public housing and the establishment of third arm of the economy by creating cooperatives and collectives. Simple things. All it needs is a vote in Parliament. doesn't even need a referendum. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, you've got a number of options. Next Thursday, the 5th of May, at midday, I'll be holding a campaign launch on the steps of the old Treasury Building in Melbourne at the corner of Collins and Spring Street. 12 o'clock. Please come along. Please come along. Two. This is a campaign which is based on your involvement. I've hit the ball to you. Don't hit the ball back to me and say, oh, how about this policy or that policy? What I want you to do is hit the ball back into the spectators, into the spectator stands, behind you, around you, beside you. And how do you do that? Well, I'm calling on cyber nerds and cyber warriors, one and, the, one and the same, I think, cyber nerds and cyber warriors to take up this campaign. If you go to the Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the public, you'll see these 
policies there. Next week, we'll advertise the um, launch, but this week the policies are there. Pick them up, send them around the country. Although I'm only holding the campaign in Victoria, these are policies which should interest every Australian citizen and permanent resident. Now, if you live in Victoria and somehow you um, wish to vote for me, well, that's your privilege, but it's a little bit difficult. The Senate paper is broken up into two by a thick black line. On top of the black line, there'll be boxes from A to Z. 22 will have the names of political parties next to them. Three will have nothing next to them. Look below the nine. There will be 103 candidates, yes. Now, if you wish to vote above the line for a political party, one of the young, one of the grouped independents, you just put a, a one in the box you prefer, but you need to mark six boxes from one to six. If you decide to vote below the line, you need to mark 12 boxes from one to 12. 12 boxes from one to 12. You put one in the box. If you agree with these policies, I'm not telling you to vote for me, I'm just saying if you agree with these policies, you put one in the box next to my name. I am, this is the irony of it all, on the far right-hand corner of your Senate ballot paper, there are ungrouped candidates, there are 12 candidates, we are ungrouped, we are below the line in order to vote for us, the individuals. You need to put the one in the box next to me if you wish to vote for me, if you wish to vote for somebody else, you do that, and then you allocate your preferences as you see fit. This, spending a few extra minutes filling the ballot paper in this way gives you total control on how your vote is recorded and where your preferences go. So if you are voting, look at the website, look at the Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public, hopefully later on, pipsy.net, anarchismedia.org, and the list goes on and on. But the important thing is, not whether you vote for me or not, I don't, put, you know, that's your business. But the important thing is that we get these policies out, that that Victorian mountain ash grows, because as the climate emergency increases, as inequality increases, you will find that the conditions are right for many of these policies. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Messages 0439 395 489. You can go to the fa- Facebook page, Joseph Toscana, Toscana for the Public. Web pages, anarchistmedia.org, public interest before corporate interests. You want to see me talk about these policies? Go to YouTube, public interest before corporate interests. But the important thing is you need to bash that ball into the stadium. The stadium is Australia. Don't bash it back to me. Bash into the stadium. Change the course of this election. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger!
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.